Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I am Ben Williams, your host. Today, I'm pleased to relay to you an article on the seven-branched menorah. Hanukkah is fast approaching. The symbolism of the menorah exceeds a simple lamp stand. It is worthy of your consideration. Of course, the menorah features in some of the so-called higher degrees of the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite as practiced in the southern jurisdiction of the United States of America. And we will continue with our reading of the Three Books of Occult Philosophy by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettersheim. Chapter 17. How by enmity and friendship the virtues of things to be tried and found out. Visit RockyMountainMason.com. Subscribe to our quarterly publication, The Rocky Mountain Mason. Visit EsotericMason.com. Subscribe to our biannual, The Esoteric Mason. And visit LaughingLion.net for small batch quality goods, including our Templar Rosary. Handmade in Italy. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Sic Luciat Vestra. The menorah, the seven lamp used by Moses in the sanctuary of the tabernacle, has much symbolism worthy of study by any royal archmason. The menorah is created according to the dictum in Exodus 25, verses 31 through 40. And I quote, Make a lampstand of pure gold, hammer out its base and shaft, and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches, extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand are to be four cups, shaped like almond flowers, with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches, extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall be all of one piece with the lampstand, hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps and set them up on it, so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. The seven branches are said to allude to the seven days of creation, 
and the central branch indicative of the Sabbath. Similarly, the seven colors of the rainbow and the seven streams of human knowledge, and, by extension, the seven liberal arts and sciences, are likewise alluded to by the heptad of the menorah. This is also symbolized with reference to the seven entrances into the human head, the two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and one mouth. In the New Testament, John the Evangelist uses a similar heptad symbolism in rebuking the seven churches and describes seven lampstands and seven angels before the throne of God. There are also described seven eyes of God. Clement of Alexandria, of about 150 to 215 AD, and Philo Judaeus, of about 25 to 50 BC, both claimed that the seven-lamp menorah is symbolic of the seven planets, that is, the seven astral bodies that seem to wander the heavens. Note that the word planet is derived from the Greek word planetes, which means wanderer. In ancient cosmology, each planet represented one of the celestial spheres, which separated the below from the above. By ascension through the spheres, man could again reunite with God. Lighting each of the branches in succession is indicative of this ascent and reunion, perhaps. The seven planets are Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, Moon. Each was said to be significant of the agency of an archangel, by whose modes the will of God is made manifest. Each of the planets is also significant of each day of the week, and thus the unfolding of creation as well. These are deistic forces sent to shepherd man, when rendered worthy through the wilderness of mortal life. In modern practice, the sun is often placed at the center of the menorah, with three superior planets on one side, that would be Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and the three inferior planets on the other, Venus, Mercury, Moon. By superior we mean above, by inferior we mean below. This is not a qualitative assessment of the virtues of the planet, rather a quantitative description of their placement. This is the so-called Chaldean order of the planets, and represents the apparent distance of each body from the observer. In order of speed, through the zodiac. This is, of course, the geocentric solar system, yet the order remains correct in terms of relationships with the observer. If we substitute the planet Earth for the Sun, then the order of the planets is correct from the perspective of modern astronomy as well, which is inherently extraterrestrial, as in viewed from outside of the Earth. Now, of interest perhaps, in Orthodox Kabbalah, the menorah is symbolic of the sephirot, the tree of life, as it is vernacularly known. Grossly speaking, one three-branch side is the pillar of severity, the other three-branch side the pillar of mildness, and the central pillar the pillar of balance in between. Ten parts can be seen, the top of each end of the three main arcs, which comprises six points, the tip of the central branch, or one point, and the points where the side branches cross the central branch, branch, three points, giving the familiar arrangement of points postulated by Isaac Luria, the RE of blessed memory, when setting forth the arrangement of the tree so familiar to modern sensibilities, that is three on one side, 
four in the middle, and three on the other side. More esoterically, however, the seven lights of the menorah allude to Zaya Ainpin, the micro-prosopus, or small face, of God, comprising the seven lowest sephira of the tree, that is Malchut, Yuzod, Hod, Nexak, Tiferet, Givura, and Chezed, itself in resonant association with Arik Einpin, the macroprosopus, or great face, comprising the other three, the supernal triad of Binar, Chokmah, and Keter. This supernal triad is symbolized by the flames ascending from the menorah when the seven branches are lit. Three on one side are alike one flame, three on the other side are alike one flame, and the central flame is one flame. Further, in the famous book, the Sefer Zohar, or Book of Splendor, we read, All of you Mishnaic sages and Talmudic sages gather together, for the time has come to fix the vessels of the king, to set them in order and rectify them. There are the ten vessels of the tabernacle. They are the menorah, the table, the altar, the washbasin and jug, the ark and the curtain, and the two carobs, and all in its weight. The all in its weight signifies the shekels collected at the temple, and signifies Malchus, the kingdom, the lowest sephira of earthly existence. This is fitting, as the shekels are brought into the temple as an offering, and so too is mortal life, in a sense a return to the supernal temple with the offering of judgment. Yet further symbolism of the menorah is prophetic. Isaiah prophesied regarding the coming of the Messiah, and he writes in Isaiah 11, verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Wherein are evident seven spirits, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. These seven spirits are repeated by Jesus in the apocryphal Apocalypse of James, found in fragments at Nag Hammadi in 1945. These seven spirits by which the Messiah shall be made known, then, are also associated by some with the seven branches of the menorah. Kabbalists further associate the Tetragrammaton with the menorah. The Tetragrammaton, you will record, is the ineffable name of God of four letters. Tetra being four, Grammaton being Latinized name. It consists of four Hebrew letters, Yud, He, Vav, He. The top of the central branch is the Yud, symbolizing the ineffable deity from whence all creation is made manifest. The three branches on either side are given a hay, and each hay is made up of three strokes, three valves, if you will, the horizontal stroke and the two vertical strokes. The base of the column, or the yud manifesting into the world, is significant of the vav. The central branch is thus male, seminal, and active. Yud and vav are male letters in the symbolism the Kabbalah ascribes to the alphabet. The two side branches of three lamps each are essentially female, generative, and receptive. Interestingly, 
If we take each hay as three vavs, we can evince the Shem HaMefresh from the menorah as well. The Shem HaMefresh, or great name of God of 72 letters, the name of extension, is derived by a permutation of several verses of Exodus. Exodus 14, verses 19 through 21, into 24 three-lettered names, and is fit in the scribal tradition to the tetragrammaton at each of the tegin, or the crowns with which the letters are frequently ornamented. If we create each he in the tetragrammaton as three vavs, then the number of each side of the menorah is 36, six times six. Taken together, then, each three-branch side of the menorah is significant of half of the 72-lettered name, or equivalent, if you will, to an arm of God. The central column, which numerically is 10 and 6, the Yud and the Vav, is reducible to 7, 6 plus 1 plus 0 equals 7, and therefore represents the whole from the center. Now this is well represented in Exodus 25, wherein the menorah is instructed to be made, having, and I quote, three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms, on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. Counting the flowers, buds and blossoms then, in addition to the branches themselves, creates ten points on each branch, which totals thirty on each side. There are then four such cups with buds and blossoms on the central branch, making 12 points, and 13 if we include the branch itself. That's a total of 73. This number of the Shem HaMefresh, 72, plus 1. And 7 plus 3, of course, reduces to 10, which reduces to 1. All things return to God and the menorah symbolizes the creation itself, God sending things out into movement, and then the movement of the return of all things back to God in completeness. Now, we find the menorah represented in many of the degrees of the appendant bodies in both the York and the Scottish rites. I mentioned at the beginning of that piece that the contemplation of the menorah is worthy of every royal archmason, and that is certainly true when you consider the setup of the chapter. I would like to add, since we are in the season of Hanukkah and the season of lights for those who celebrate that holiday, that um, in the chapter, and also in the degrees that are equivalent, if you will, in the ancient and accepted Scottish rite of the southern jurisdiction, the burning of incense is mentioned. It is too frequent today that, of course, incense is not burned in the lodge. Many of the older brothers have allergies or discomfort and dislike the scent of um, incense. However, I think, especially in the chapter, that the burning of incense, and preferably Hajari frankincense, is entirely appropriate. Frankincense itself has many, many virtuous properties, not just spiritually speaking, but also, in fact, for health. So on that note, I think I will read you a short piece on the benefits of frankincense. 
when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Exodus 30, verse 8. The burning of incense as an offering before the Lord our God has been common for millennia. Aaron, brother of Moses, and the original Levite high priest of the Israelites, was commanded by God to burn incense upon the altar. There was a time when the burning of incense was common within Masonic lodges. Indeed, burning incense at various altars is integral to the passage of the candidate in the so-called higher degrees of various appendant bodies. Frankincense is one of the oldest traded commodities in the world. It has been actively cultivated and traded for more than 5,000 years. Harvested from the sap of the Boswellia Sacra tree, endemic to the Holy Land, it has crossed every continent. Importantly, it was one of the gifts the three wise men brought before Christ in the manger. Its sacred nature should not be underestimated. It is interesting to note that the name frankincense references the Knights Templar. Frank, incense. The Franks brought it back from the Holy Land during the Crusades, and it has since borne their name. Today, modern science reveals many intriguing properties of frankincense. In May of 2008, Johns Hopkins and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem determined that frankincense smoke is a psychoactive drug that relieves depression and anxiety in mice. Frankincense has been used in the successful treatment of arthritis. In 2009, the Department of Urology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center reported that frankincense oil appears to distinguish cancerous from normal bladder cells and suppress cancer cell viability. Now, the burning of frankincense remains a visible way to offer devotion to deity, to sanctify any chapter or lodge room, and engender in the brethren there assembled the due reverence worthy of homage to deity. It might be a healthy endeavor, too. Well, don't go away. We'll be right back. Chapter 17 of the Three Books of Occult Philosophy by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettersheim. Chapter 17 of the Three Books of Occult Philosophy by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettersheim How by enmity and friendship the virtues of things are to be tried and found out. In the next place, it is requisite that we consider that all things have a friendliness and enmity amongst themselves, and everything hath something that it fears and dreads, that is, an enemy, and destructive to it, and on the contrary, something that it rejoiceth and delighteth in, and is strengthened by. So in the elements, fire is an enemy to water, and air to earth, and yet they agree amongst themselves. And again in celestial bodies, Mercury, Jupiter, the Sun, and Moon are friends to Saturn, Mars and Venus enemies to him. All the planets beside Mars are friends to Jupiter. Also, all besides Venus hate Mars. Jupiter and Venus love the Sun. 
Mars, Mercury, and the Moon are enemies to him. All besides Saturn love Venus. Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn are friends to Mercury. The Sun, Moon, and Mars his enemies. Jupiter, Venus, Saturn are friends to the Moon. Mars and Mercury her enemies. There is another kind of enmity amongst the stars, viz. when they have opposite houses, as Saturn to the Sun and Moon, Jupiter to Mercury, Mars to Venus. And their enmity is stronger, whose exaltations are opposite, as of Saturn and the Sun, of Jupiter and Mars, of Venus and Mercury. But their friendship is the strongest who agree in nature, quality, substance, and power, as Mars with the Sun, and Venus with the Moon, as Jupiter with Venus, as also their friendship whose exaltation is in the house of another, as that of Saturn with Venus, and Jupiter with the Moon, of Mars with Saturn, and the Sun with Mars, of Venus with Jupiter, of the Moon with Venus. And what sort the friendships and enmities of the superiors be? Such are the inclinations of things subjected to them in these inferior. These dispositions, therefore, of friendship and enmity are nothing else but certain inclinations of things, of the one to another, desiring such and such a thing if it be absent, and to move toward it unless it be hindered, and to acquiesce in it when it is obtained, shunning the contrary and dreading the approach of it and not resting in or being contented with it. Heraclitus, therefore, being guided by this opinion, professed that all things were made by enmity and friendship. Now the inclinations of friendship are such in vegetables and minerals, as is that attractive inclination which the lodestone hath upon iron, and the emerald upon riches and favour, the jasper upon the birth of anything, and the stone acartes upon eloquence. In like manner there is a kind of bituminous clay that draws fire and leaps into it, wheresoever it sees it. Even so doth the root of the herb abroxus draw fire from afar off. Also the same inclination there is betwixt the male palm and female, whereof, when the bow of one shall touch the bow of the other, they fold themselves into mutual embraces, neither doth the female bring forth fruit without the male. And the almond tree when she is alone, is less fruitful. The vines love the elm, and the olive tree, and myrtle love one another. Also the olive tree, and fig tree. Now, in animals there is amity betwixt the blackbird and thrush, betwixt the crow and heron, betwixt peacocks and pigeons, turtles and parrots. When Sappho writes to Phaon, To birds unlike oftentimes joined are white doves, also the bird that's green, black turtle loves. Again the whale and the little fish his guide are friendly. Neither is this amity in animals only amongst themselves, but also with other things as with metals, stones, and vegetables. So the cat delights in the herb nip, by rubbing herself upon which she is said to conceive without a male, and there be mares in Cappadocia that expose themselves to the blast of the wind, and by the attraction thereof, conceive. So frogs, toads, snakes, and all manner of creeping poisonous things delight in the plant called passflower, of whom all the physicians say, if anyone eat, he shall die with laughing. The tortoise also, when he is hunted by the adder, eats oreganum, and is thereby strengthened, 
and the stork, when he hath eight snakes, seeks for a remedy in Oregonum, and the weasel, when he goes to fight with the basilisk, eats rue, whence we come to know that Oregonum and rue are effectual against poison. So in some animals there is an inbred skill and medicinal art, for when the toad is wounded with a bite or poison of another animal, he is wont to go to rue or sage and rub the place wounded, and so escapes the danger of the poison. So men have learned many excellent remedies of diseases and virtues of things from brutes. So swallows have showed us that salandine is very medicinable for the sight with which they cure the eyes of their young, and the pie, when she is sick, puts a bay leaf into her nest and is recovered. In like manner, cranes, daws, partridges, blackbirds purge their nauseous stomachs with the same, with which also crows allay the poison of the chameleon, and the lion, if he be feverish, is recovered by eating of an ape. The lapwing, being surfeited with eating of grapes, cures himself with southernwood, so the hearts have taught us that the herb dittany is very good to draw out darts, for they being wounded with an arrow, cast it out by eating of this herb, and, so, and same do goats in candy. So hinds, a little before they bring forth, purge themselves with a certain herb called mountain osier. Also they that are hurt with spiders seek a remedy by eating of crabs. Swine, also being hurt by snakes, cure themselves by eating of them. And crows, when they perceive they are poisoned with a kind of French poison, seek for cure in the oak. Elephants, when they have swallowed a chameleon, help themselves with the wild olive. Bears, being hurt with mandrakes, escape the danger by eating of pismires. Geese, ducks, and such like watery fowl cure themselves with the herb called wallsage. Pigeons, turtles, hens with the herb called pelletry of the wall. Cranes and bulrushes, leopards, cure themselves, being hurt with the herb called wolfsbane, by man's dung, boars with ivy, hinds with the herb called cenaria. Now, a couple of things there. First, I apologize if you can hear my daughter running around upstairs. Um, it's very hard in this small house in which we live here in the suburbs of Denver to find any quiet time to do this properly, um, nonetheless. Um, so, again, Agrippa is speaking of the doctrine of sympathies. Um, and this, of course, is, uh, I guess, maybe the, the best takeaway from this chapter is the witnessing of nature observing nature, uh, there to learn secret remedies to various diseases, as man has practiced for, for many years. I want to point out, you know, rather than the whole sort of uh, sympathies of um, the animals and the ability to heal themselves by eating things with which they are friends uh, versus things which harm them by virtue of their enmity between them, um, to point out these sort of parallels in the virtues, the natures that comprise these beings. Let's focus on the planetary correspondences that Agrippa opened the chapter with. Now, he starts off by saying that Mercury, Jupiter, and the Sun, and the Moon are all friends to Saturn, Mars and Venus enemies to him. And he goes through a list of these different uh, planetary sort of um, adversaries and friendships, let's say. 
Now, his first sort of mode of organizing these friendships and these um, enmities between the planetary archetypes is the elemental correspondences that comprise them, the hot, dry, you know, wet, cold correspondences between them. So, for example, Jupiter, the sun, are are both hot. Um, Jupiter and the moon are both wet. Now, Mercury kind of takes on many different natures depending on where he is disposed in the uh, in the zodiac, if you will, and with whom he is there disposed. Mercury kind of adopts natures. Um, now, Mars and Venus are enemies to Saturn, although that's not always true. But the reason why he's saying that, of course, is because Mars is hot and Venus is wet and Saturn is cold and dry, and the dryness conflicts with Mercury, with Venus's wetness, excuse me, and Saturn's coldness conflicts with Mars's hotness. However, of course, we know that Venus exalts Saturn, and in fact, he discusses this later on when he says, of course, that, um, you know, the friendship whose exaltation is in the house of another as that of Saturn with Venus. This is simply because Venus's sign, her domicile of Libra, exalts Saturn. not sure what that noise is upstairs um but perhaps it's time to stop this podcast um we could go on uh, i would say that you know this isn't as complicated as it sounds there is if you will a somewhat simple formula by which this stuff is memorable one understand the elementary um, virtues that comprise the planets and recognize that opposites there between creates tension and likeness augments strength then also memorize the zodiacal archetype, the so-called primordial year, if you will, uh, where each of the signs and the ruler therein is disposed in like arrangement. Uh, This is actually a very worthy study, a very worthy mnemonic, because it provides a wonderful um, symmetry that sort of explains archetypal correspondences in mankind. Um, In fact, the the zodiacal wheel um, that comprises a chart, it's always very interesting. For example, the signs of Mars, Aries, and Scorpio are opposed to the signs of Venus, which are, of course, Libra and Taurus. This is men are from Mars, women are from Venus, you know, in the sort of new age um, self-help section of the library. Um, but there is some sort of tradition, um, something in the psychology of man and woman that aligns in this opposition that creates on the one hand a wife and a marriage or a partnership, and yet on the other, open enemies, war and battles. So we see a correspondence between enemies and spouses, which I think is very, very fascinating. There is a type of tension there. And any marriage is, of course, in a sense, a, a, a battle, um, a battle of wills, um, a surrendering of wills, um, a combination, a partnership uh, of two bodies aligned across the horizontal, if you will. And the other oppositions of this wheel are likewise disposed to reveal, I think, very insightful symmetries about the human spirit. In fact, Carl Jung once wrote to none other than Sigmund Freud on this subject and said that he had never found astrology to be unuseful in penetrating the psychologies of his most difficult subjects. thank you for listening this far if you've enjoyed this podcast you may become a patron visit rockymountainmason.com scroll down to our 
podcast logo, the Patreon link is there below. You may be a patron for as little as $5 a month. Your support is greatly appreciated. I hope you have a very happy Hanukkah. I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. I hope you view with due solemnity the Great Conjunction. And contemplate the beginning of a new great cycle, human endeavor. And until next time, take care and Godspeed.